0: This week, I'm speaking with the wonderful, warm and utterly energising Sophie Morgan, TV presenter, author and disability campaigner. I just, I don't know what to say about Sophie. She's, I, I called her a prebiotic and then I changed that to a Barocca, which is a far, far better description. She is an, she's a double Barocca. Sophie's work is challenging the perceptions that can otherwise limit other women like her. And for most recently, she has this unbelievable campaign for inclusive travel, which is happening right now. And I'm going to talk much about it and where you can follow the work that she's doing. Sophie, in her own words, was a wild child. But speaking with her, I realised that Actually, that's the inbuilt quality of this incredible woman. Grit and grace and a pure zest for life is what pulled her through some of the most challenging circumstances and experiences that I've ever heard. Um, and I just loved every moment with this woman. She literally radiates and I promise you that it will be a conversation that not only will challenge your own perceptions, but one that will potentially change your perspective on life. Thank you, Sophie.
1: Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down. Where we're going, you won't need to bring your
0: frown. I'm Holly Tucker, and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not On The High Street for my kitchen table. And since then, I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of creative small businesses. And I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom, and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs, and those who simply inspire me and asked them to share theirs. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hi, Sophie. I am thrilled that we're together today and we finally get a chance to speak we actually met at the happy place festival didn't we last summer and it was the hottest day of the year my goodness and uh and we've uh, it's just been one of those things i've wanted to talk to you ever since so thank you so much for agreeing and welcome to conversations of inspiration Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, well, I, we did. We were in that lovely tent out the back of this talk
1: stage, weren't we? And I, obviously you came up and we started chatting, and but we didn't get a chance to continue that chat because we were both so busy. So I'm really grateful to be here. Thank you for having it- me.
0: Well, you're so welcome. People might know you best from your TV work as a presenter and a panelist on Loose Women. You're also an author, an inclusive travel expert and a bloody brilliant campaigner. And I'm going to jump straight into that because it's all kicked off for you recently. But before we even start, I follow you religiously on Instagram. And I just want to say deeply what a phenomenal woman you are, because not only your tenacity, um, that you have in spades, but you've you've educated me. I have to say, I've been following you on Instagram. I look at what you do in your life. I look at your family. I look at everything, and I have to say that you've really opened my eyes to disability, to challenges. Um, but there is a strength in you, Sophie. That is, is pretty inspiring, I have to say. And I just before we even started, I just had to say it's just been such a pleasure to bump into you at that festival, but then delve in and get to know you through our little screens and our little grids. Um but yeah, you know, really, really happy to be here today with you. Well the feeling is is very mutual, Holly. I've been a fan for a long time. I love what you do.
1: I love what you're about. And I think Thank you, firstly, for that. I, I, I that's one of the reasons why I love social media. It gets such a bad rep for all the right reasons, but when it's good, it's such an amazing place to learn, isn't it? You know, it's such an incredible resource. And I always encourage people. I always say, disrupt that feed of yours so that you can make sure it's curated to 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 go and learn about things. So I'm really grateful that's worked for you. And, and my 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 um I don't have the biggest following, but I I do try and put out. The, the authentic side of you know this this lived experience as much as i can so i'm it's great
0: feedback so thank you <laughs> yeah i feel it i feel it deeply and uh, you know i want to jump actually straight into something i've been fascinated watching and you talk about And what what you're doing, the challenging of perceptions of disability. And I know you work tirelessly to campaign for inclusive travel. And I've been following your recent campaign, Rights on Flights. I've seen you outside Downing Street. I've seen you on TV. Can you share your experience with us and how it all started? Because I know I won't be alone in recognising what a shocking situation it is. So... Uh, let's put some context into this because it's almost,
1: it's a long and short story. I was paralyzed in a car crash when I was 18 years old and I'm now a manual wheelchair user. Um, And I have loved traveling. It's been my favorite thing to do despite all of that. You know, there are so many barriers that make traveling as a wheelchair user incredibly challenging But despite that, I I still seek it out and I still, I love it. I I love nothing more than, than, than going out of my comfort zone, but going out into the world. Um, and one of the problems that I face and so many other people like me face is that the barriers that we face sort of, they, they start from the very beginning of that journey. So with air travel, um, In particular, there's a number of reasons why it's so challenging for for wheelchair users and for disabled people in general. But just to unpack my lived experience a bit more. um, So I, as I said, I'm dependent on a wheelchair and I use a manual wheelchair, but I travel with a battery powered attachment that clicks onto the front of my chair that makes it just easier for me to get around. Anyway, about two months ago, I was coming back from the States and the process of traveling, the way that it works is that when you're traveling as a wheelchair user with an attachment like me, you arrive at the aircraft door and then the airline will take the the devices and you transfer onto a a smaller seat, which is called an aisle chair. And at that point, they take your mobility equipment and they pop it down into the hold and you are then dragged on board uh, to your seat And then you transfer across into your seat or you are helped to transfer across into your seat and there you stay for the journey. And if you need to go to the loo, you have to ring the call bell and then you're taken to the toilet, which usually is too small to even get into. And the process is incredibly stressful undignified and at, at, you know at best it's that but at worst it's it's outright dangerous and um I won't go into some of the stories but there are some horror stories out there including some of my own because of the the way in which the the aircraft is designed is just so challenging for us anyway um when I, al- I arrived back from the states I was reunited with my chair and that device at the aircraft door after the journey and for some reason, in the in the journey, in the hold, at some point, somebody had decided to reconnect this attachment and my chair, um, and they'd done so without permission, without needing to, also, and also done it wrong. And my chair and this attachment were lying on the floor, upside down and incorrectly put together. And I said, I don't, "Who's done this? Why? Why have you done this?" Anyway, I'm sitting there going, somebody needs to disconnect this so I can get back into it. I'm sitting in the aisle chair at this point and I'm going, guys, what's what's going on? What's going on? So anyway, long story short, they had to break it apart, Ollie. And and to, to be honest with you, the, sitting there watching somebody break apart your £8,000 wheelchair and um, manhandle it like that, it's, it's, there's very few words I can use to describe it. It's absolutely traumatic it's really scary it's really uh, horrible anyway they broke it apart I eventually got into a position where I could get back into it and get out of the airport but it was damaged um and basically it was a write-off so I've I've thankfully got a spare chair but you can imagine I was I was just enraged and the way it was handled was also really poor because British Airways they said to me just drop us an email through the website um with a complaint and I thought you know what this is ridiculous. If somebody for me, my wheelchairs are my my it's my legs. And if somebody was had uh, broken your legs and then just said, right, don't worry, just just drop us an email, you know, t- to complain. You 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 would be dumbstruck. You just couldn't believe it. But this is the way that we're treated. So that kind of led to me going on to Loose Women, where I was complaining about the situation and just and saying, look, this is just outrageous. This is so frustrating and so challenging and also very, very disabling. Thankfully, as I said, i got a spare wheelchair. But when this happens to some people and they don't, that's just, you know, what do you do? Your, your life ends, literally. So um, I complained about it on social media. I got an Thousands of messages from people saying, "You're not alone. This has happened to me too." And to be honest with you, Holly, that's the major problem. Is that you know my story is the tip of the iceberg. This this happens to people all the time. Not just wheelchairs being broken, but assistance not being provided. People being left on the plane for too long. You know, people wetting themselves on board. People, people being told to wear nappies. People being. It is honestly, it's just so many problems. I I, I don't really. We we don't need to go into them too in too much detail, but that you get the you get the point. It's it's bad. Anyway. An MP reached out to me and said, look, I've been really interested in doing an accessible air travel campaign. I know some of the problems that my constituents are facing and I really want to do something. can you come in? So I zoom into Parliament the next day to meet this wonderful MP called Mariam Fellows, who's the Disability Minister for SNP. And she said, like, what, what can we do together? So we put our heads together and we thought, right, what are the levers that she can pull internally? What is the noise that I can make externally? And what can we do together? And that became this campaign, Rights on Flights, where we first step is we've asked the government to give the civil aviation authority the power to impose fines when these things happen to the airlines Mm. because at the moment the airlines just kind of get away with a bit of a slap on the wrist or a bit of bad press but really the consequences of their actions aren't that bad um so we set we 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 outlined the punitive measures we wanted um, the government to to give and we wrote a letter an open letter and we circulated that for mps to sign which they did we got about 125, 130 signatures. And we then delivered that to 10 Downing Street. But get this, this is where it gets even just in many ways brilliant because it just highlights exactly the problem. 10 Downing Street itself isn't even accessible. The ramps going into 10 Downing Street for wheelchair users are temporary. They're not big enough for most wheelchairs or power chairs. And um, they don't reach all the way up to the very top. So I couldn't even hand over the letter myself. It had to be handed over by Marion, which is just it. Who is a, not a wheelchair user? I, sh- I should explain. So, yeah,
0: <laughs> you know, everywhere we go, you were you Every go, point, I just of the, the yeah. Step, and but it, in this whole journey, it has just been yeah. It's highlighting, but you know, it's exactly that. And and the reality is, you speak to
1: most disabled people, they'll have a horror story of their own when it comes to flying but it will also be in other forms of transport too. It's not, there's, there's a lot of barriers as I, as I said earlier, but you know, the other part of this is, is the way in which we've just normalized the, the lack of access and the, and the intrinsic ableism that exists everywhere. And the more I shine a light on it, for myself as well as others, I think, gosh, how can we think it's okay that 10 Downing Street isn't accessible? What message does that send to young disabled future leaders Oh no, no! Yes. You're not welcome here. You couldn't possibly aspire to be in this room, despite the fact that that room is filled with people that we vote in and we make up ten percent or twenty percent of the population, and yeah. yet we're not represented. You know, and I think I learned there's only about five MPs who even identify as disabled. So you're kind of thinking, you know, wow, representation matters so much. So much work needs to be done. And I picked this fight with the airlines, but I could pick a fight anywhere. There's so many causes that need championing, so many fights that need to be held to move the dial on inclusion for disabled
0: people. And yeah, where do you start? One of the things I found though shocking, and you've shared this on your um, social media, is during the course of this campaign, you've also received this hate. These messages, they're vile. It's disgusting. So I, I couldn't believe when you shared that Richard, whatever his name is, and you shared what he said and i don't know how how do you cope with this i mean and, and these are messages that are these aren't just like oh be quiet sophie you know it's not no. that it is no. the most disgusting stuff i've read and okay so there's two things i want to say
1: to it one is i get messages from people that are quite uh, tr- like, you know we can call it trolling abusive i suppose and and that's been happening ever since I poked my head above the parapet and became, you know, God on television, right? I've been getting kind of difficult messages. So I've kind of got used to it in that respect. But what makes these messages different um, and comes to my second point, which is why did I decide to share them on social media is the way in which I wonder about the the ableism within the messages that I get and how it's not just, you know, pull it... highlighting or addressing the fact that I'm a woman. That's not the kind of hate I get, which I, of course I I, I I do that that's laced within the messages, but it's mm. actually this ableism, Holly. So the reason I shared that particular message that you're referencing is because this particular man had, the way in which he decided to threaten me was with disability. He said, um, I won't repeat it all because it's really horrible, but he said one of the lines, he said, I uh, wished that I would be a wheelchair user for life. It was like a threat, right? That mm. that I would be disabled but and I'd have this disabled life. And I found it really curious because I'm like but I have that life and I find that really fascinating that this person has decided to threaten somebody with a disability with disability. And 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 what does that tell you about um the way in which we see disability as a punishment. We see disability as this you know, fate worse than death, I think is what I unpacked in my response to his letter, Mm. which I put on social media. And I'm not articulating it as well because I I did spend some time on that response. Yeah, it was a
0: bloody brilliant response. Bloody brilliant. Thank you. I just felt like saying, come at me with something
1: different if you're going to come at me because I I love my disability. I'm, you know, threatening me with... Mm paralysis i'm like well i've got that already and and actually it's not the punishment you think it is disability isn't the the dirty word the the awful label that you that you think it is and i think that's something i unpack every day and or i encounter every day with just non-disabled people It's these mm. intrinsic insidious ideas that disability is this awful awful thing and and so in that in his message when i decided to respond to it i thought let's look at that ableism in that message and see what we can learn from it you know if somebody's threatening someone they're not he's not threatening to kill me or hurt me violently or anything sexual he's threatening me with disability and i always think about that i think I remember this awful story. It stuck with me, and it's it's always carried with me. And I'm sorry to go so dark so quickly, but it's all I right. Let's some, go
0: straight in. Five minutes get, in. Let's, let's just let's do it.
1: Um, but I think there's so much to be said for it because I think it, it it yes. Anyway, so this story told somebody told me there was a spinal injuries unit in um, South Africa somewhere, and um, the spinal surgeon ha- was had come to the UK and was working in the spinal unit where I was being looked after. And basically, he told me that above the beds in the spinal unit in South Africa, they would write what had caused the spinal injury. So, for example, for me, above my bed would have been car accident. But in South Africa, he said, most of the time above the beds, you see the sign and it says gang, gang crime, gang crime. And and I was confused by that. I said what? He said, well, what's happening is they are paralyzing people with bike spokes. They're putting a bike spoke into the spinal cord of, of their enemies when they, instead of killing them because they think it's a fate worse than death to be paralyzed. And that's why all these people were being paralyzed. And I remember sitting there thinking, wow, is that what disability is? Is, is that really what it is? And I hadn't learned then what I know now, which is that isn't the truth for me anyway it's not the truth that i've found this wonderful life and that you know it can be further from the truth but i remember thinking wow these are the messages that that this is what people carry with yes, idea. Yes. it's the worst thing ever and um and so when i get you know a message like that i think let's put it out there and 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 have people address that inside themselves somewhere if anyone carries that that idea in them that disability is 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 this awful awful thing and you know, for example, Holly, I remember thinking somebody never says to me, aren't you lucky to be disabled? But I feel that way sometimes. They'll always go, oh, I'm so sorry, you know, or they'll say, I feel so much pity for you, or, they'll, or they will express such pity for me. And it's fascinating because I, I feel like saying to no, no, no. <laughs>
0: Every week I hand over this part of the podcast to our brilliant partners at Dell Technologies. Dell are passionate about supporting female entrepreneurs and to date have positively impacted over 86,000 female businesses through Dwen, Dell Women's Entrepreneur Network. Because technology is such a crucial USP for small businesses and startups, the annual DWEN Dream Tech Contest is a chance to win a significant value of Dell Technology every year. This year, the contest opens in September, so keep your eyes peeled. From online to in-person events, access to funding technology resources, dedicated Dell Tech advisors, as well as opportunities to be spotlighted on a global platform. It's an invaluable group of brilliant women right across the world. To find out more about Dwen and how to sign up, head to dwen.com. Now back to our conversation of inspiration. You write so eloquently in your book, Driving Forwards, about the next part of your story. Um, You referred right at the beginning when we started talking that you were 18 years old. It was your A-level results night. My son is upstairs studying for his A-levels. So I'm really... Uh, when I speak to you, I'm I'm feeling um, that era of your life. You were driving and you had a terrible car crash that left you instantly paralysed from the chest down. And I know you've made very deliberate decisions about how you talk about the crash and the language that you use around it. Tell me about that. Yeah, I decided about uh, ten years, I
1: suppose, after the crash to refer to it as a crash, not an accident. Um, and that is quite significant, I think, for a number of reasons. I decided I needed to take responsibility for what I had done. So I had been driving home from my A-level results party, as you said, and I I lost control of my car and I crashed in that car. And I, thankfully, the passengers in, um, in the car, there was somebody, there, I mean, it was full um, and all of them were, you know, in such high spirits, we just got, it was the biggest day of our lives, really, you know, you know, that energy at that time. And, oh my God, we had it in spades and we were in the car and it was just, I was sober and I had a seatbelt on, um, but I was driving really out of control and I was so excited and rushing. And actually that sense of urgency that you talk of, I mean, I had that pulsing through me. I was just eager to get going and I was driving just as such and anyway that the crash happened everybody in the car was okay thankfully um but obviously I really wasn't and I was always grateful for that you know I was always so grateful that I didn't hurt anybody else but I I think it was it was complicated my relationship with what had happened um and the, taking responsibility took some time, I think. But what happened for me was um, the BBC contacted me um, about 10 years after the crash and they said, look, there's this news report gone out. Some statistics have been found that the biggest killer of young people was driving. And I was really shocked by that and, and realised then that I was just a, st- a number... Like, my story was perhaps, you know, a story that others could relate to or that others might find themselves getting into. And I thought, gosh, I must explore it. So I went and made a documentary about it. And and in the documentary, which is called Licence to Kill, I learned a huge amount, not only about what happened with me, but also about why this was happening with other young people. And as a result, I. Much like the police had actually reterm, they changed it from an RTA, which is a road traffic accident, to an RTC. That's when I, I, I was I was influenced by that a road traffic uh, collision or crash. I was influenced by that too because what they said and what I learned was that there were an accident makes it sound like there's no one at fault and that there is nothing to be learnt from it. It is almost completely. You know, unexpected, unpredictable, and it's just an animal know.
0: runs in front of the car. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely,
1: which is almost a, a dangerous perspective. And I, th- um, when it comes to young drivers, because there was so much about my crash that I could have avoided. That there was so, you know, I. I hadn't had my license for long, and and what you're, what we at the time um, uh, came to learn was that most young drivers within the first six months will crash. I think that I think that I think it was about eighty percent of them oh would goodness. crash. Honestly, Holly, it was terrifying. And we're thinking, well, why is that? And we, you know, in the documentary, we concluded that the driving. Licensing, it wasn't fit for purpose. You were learning to drive after you passed your test, so yes, you, you didn't are. get yes. experience of learning to drive with your pals in the car late at night, music, loud on. music, yeah, you know it. All yep. of those um, distractions, we might have, I think, have touched on perhaps in theory, but certainly not in practice. And and so you know, it became very clear to me that there was things that I could, I could learn from what I did and help others to go, right, mm-hmm. okay, look, look, there's avoidable misca- mistakes here. Let's make sure you 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 don't fall into the same traps that I fell into. And so I became a road safety campaigner for a couple of years after that. I was really determined to get to young drivers and say, look, you know, there's things that you can do to protect yourself. You really can. Mm-hmm. That Even though mm-hmm. you're getting behind the wheel of a car and... It is, as we say in the documentary's title, it is a license to kill. You know, there are, you, it's for, for example, you wouldn't, you know, a, the, a gun in the hands of a child, you know how dangerous that is. That's almost like what, Correct. you know, yeah. a car can be like. So yes. what can we do to protect ourselves and protect each other? And I learned so much at that time. And, you know, I did learn something really fascinating, Holly, which you must take on uh, to your son. That So the part of your brain... That's responsible for danger analysis, for risk mm-hmm. assessment. It doesn't fully maturate until you're 25. So there's a reason why when we're young, um, we're under 25, 25, absolutely, we think that nothing can go wrong and we think that we can do anything. And, Isn't and that's great that fascinating? for learning. But isn't it dangerous when it comes to driving? So, if you are in the drive, uh, if you are in the passenger seat or in the back seat and you're feeling frightened and somebody's driving really fast and you don't want to say, slow down, because it's not cool, or you don't want to be that, you know person that's the backseat driver which I hate that expression we should all be backseat drivers it's our lives in their hands it's very important but still there is that you don't want to be that as a young person perhaps or as as a young girl you don't want to say to the boy driving slow down or whatever say that you feel sick and then they will slow down because nobody wants anyone to to be sick in their their car
0: car. I mean I think back to my youth and the danger I put myself in driving too fast, music on, uh, sitting in a car, sitting in these cars, no seatbelt on, someone driving a million miles an hour and so scared to say, slow down. It wasn't the thing to be done. But Holly, you, I mean, honestly, if somebody had told someone like you, it
1: sounds like you were like, much like me. You can't do this. You can't do that. We would have wanted to do, go. And Are you do joking it anyway. I was
0: in my Peugeot 205. Where I had my brick oh mobile God. phone. Me I had my little joke. music Short, on the little sound system. System. It was like a freedom ticket, a car. But oh. listen, let, let, I need yeah. to, I need to keep going. Tell me, tell me about you though, after that, those early days after the crash, how you were young to find mental resilience. Did you, how did you do that? Was it those around you, or did you have to grow up quickly? B- both, very much both. Great question. It was
1: 100% that combination of being, you know, I was so young, but I felt, I, I felt that my life was just ripped away from me. I, I remember waking up in hospital, and as much as I didn't really know where I was, I knew that I had done something really bad, really bad to myself. I couldn't remember all the details of the crash itself, but obviously... Um, I, I, as you explained, I had been paralysed in the crash instantly. But in addition to that, I had a number of injuries on my face, and I was in so much discomfort that I was very much distracted by that pain for a long time. didn't realize the con- didn't realize quite fully what I had done to the rest of me. Um, that took a bit of time, but the be- the beginning stages of 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 um, the recovery were very rocky because I, I basically. I nearly died um, in the crash. In fact, at one point I would go, I, I do actually write about this in my book. I, I think I did die for, f- it was an extraordinary experience, which I won't go into now because it's long, but I I had this, um, you know, return to my body. And I remember trying to get through rehabilitation whilst learning about the full extent of my paralysis. Um, there was a lot in me that was so determined to get back to where I was just before the crash, because I was so itching for that life. And I was on the precipice of of adulthood. And I was so excited to get there. And then I'd had this crash that night. And I was like, no, don't interrupt me. Don't get in the way. So I was very much like, as soon as I kind of started to regain my strength, I was like, even though my body was broken, I thought, I've got to get back to that mm. so I had that in me I was very 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 determined to get back to whatever semblance of life I could but at the same time I had this support network these extraordinary people around me my mum my dad my brother my friends the the hospital itself I was at this Royal National Orthopaedic Spinal Unit in Stanmore I mean, angels, we all we all know what nurses are like and occupational therapists are like, physios. They are your lifeline and I had the best of them. So I, was, I couldn't have been in a better place to go through what I went through. Um, I was very, very lucky.
0: Gosh, because you, and again, you know, for me, it's so, I can taste that time of your life. I have a, yeah. my son is studying. We're talking, all the unis, we're talking about his life, oh, everything wonderful. he's going to be. And to think if something stopped at this point, this is the, it's its a, a cruelness because it's just that moment. You were going to become a lawyer before the crash, but afterwards you decided, decided to study art and you paint and draw. And I've seen on your Instagram, beautiful talent. And I know we have a mutual hero in Frida Kahlo. I'm a total obsessive. Um, and in your book, um, something that really resonated for me was that you described one of your paintings called The Fool based on yourself. And you said that you use a photograph of your face as the reference. And afterwards, you layered it in antique varnish because that girl was now locked in the past. And actually, it really broke me just even hearing you say that. Has art and creativity been a refuge for you? Not just necessarily in the creative space painting and drawing but creativity as as a whole i couldn't have got through it without it in fact actually i should have layered into that last answer
1: that the thing that got me through in addition to my resilience and my determination to get back to myself my my support network was actually my creativity i i took to my diaries um and drew I drew with my eyes closed I drew memories of myself before I drew fantasies of what I might be in the future I drew everything and then when I got out of hospital, I knew I had to go and study art. I mean, I'd always loved art. It had been the thing that I did at school that I loved the most. But because I had the grades, I was always encouraged to go down that other, more traditional, yes. for want of a better word, route. That was, you know, the, the way that schooling had said I should go. But I loved art. I loved it so much, Ollie. And I, when I came out of hospital, I said, well, I'm just going to go and do that. I'm going to go study art and do a degree and do all of those things. So um, art became not only a cathartic output, a, a, res- a way for me to express emotions I couldn't verbalize, a way to talk to myself in a way I couldn't even admit, you know, it also gave me tools to manage my situation and my creativity has become my greatest skill, I think, because it's it's not just the way in which I make art and paint and draw and all of those things which are so healing and powerful for me. It's also, it's just how I need to live my life as a disabled person is constantly problem solving and coming up with creative ideas for how to live in a in a world that isn't designed for me. So honestly, m- my creativity and my art and all of those things are everything to me. And Frida found me at a f- in particular time in my life. I have a lot of love for her, not just because of what she creates, but because of the personality she has and how she also a- applied her creative ability to her trauma and her suffering you know and and her spun it into gold and I, I always try and emulate that and I think yeah I couldn't live without it so if I'm not drawing I'm painting if I'm not painting I'm making of some form and I as much as I love painting I don't always get time to do it and I try and reconcile that by saying to myself actually your life is a piece of art so just make it into an artwork. Make the best masterpiece you possibly can. Keep perfecting it. Keep practicing it. So, I, and I think I wrote this recently on a on a post, and it really h- helped me articulate it for myself. That at, at the moment I might not be painting so much, um, but my activism is is my canvas or or or, or my. I was going you know, to say the I'm same. I'm not using. Yeah. Right. I was going okay. to say the
0: same. Like what you're doing is. Is creativity? You you looked at a situation and your mind turned it into something that is beautiful and bigger. And you're now painting for us to see. You're grabbing our attention. You're helping. You know. You're bringing color to situations. Do you know what I mean? And it's I I couldn't agree more. I mean, I was going to say you you previously said that you were the first disabled person that you'd met. Um, that you had a lot of ableism and a lot of preconceptions yourself. That must have been scary, because even 20 years ago, the world was a different place. And no, it has not developed as it should have. Um, But it must have been very scary once you realised, now this is what you, this is your world now. Um, Changing your own brain Maybe it's your first, fa- your family's first time that they had interacted with a disabled person, and now it was actually their own family. It was such a huge learning curve, which I'm still on. Unpacking the internalized ableism
1: is something I do, I'm still doing. I think because yes, I was the first person that I really ever met that had a disability, and I, I, I met myself with an enormous amount of ableism with stigma with with preconceived ideas of what disabled people um, and wheelchair users could do and i i i've had a lot of self-limiting beliefs Mm. because that's uh, that's what i had been told that's what i had learned along the way disabled people couldn't do the things that um that i know i can do now and i it took a long time but the problem with it was it wasn't just for me to to learn and unlearn it was that everyone around me put those yes. those those stigma those, those ideas on me and and would say you can't do that you couldn't possibly go there or you you can't be that person and and whether they were explicit or or not. There was also this implicit messaging because you didn't see disabled people doing any yes. of these things. Though I didn't have social media, I didn't see what I can see now. Like you said right at the beginning of this conversation, social media, where you can see disabled people living their best lives um, or living their truthful, authentic mm. selves with the, goods and, the good and the bad. Mm. I didn't have any of that, so yeah. I had to go and find this. invisible map for how to get back to you know how to get work out my identity um inside of all this and 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 i it's taken a long time and i'm still doing it i'm still i'm still not only educating myself i'm still educating people around me um on what what we can and can't do. You know, I started this this conversation by telling you things I can't do, which have not changed in the 20 years I've been paralysed. The flying is still the same as it was when I first flew for the first time all those years ago and nothing has changed. I'm still educating about that. But I am still also learning about the ways in which I approach my life with the attitude that I have about disability. They're still deep, deep down in there. Perhaps in the same way that as women, we have to unpack and unlearn, you know, the 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 ways in which we have our gender stereotypes or the, you know, there's so much we in, internalise, isn't there? And so it's the same for me with disability. Um, yeah, it's, Absolutely. It's, it's a lot.
0: And I, I, you know, what makes what you're doing so more important than ever for anyone who would find themselves disabled the, you know, another Sophie, let's say, they now have you, you know, and that's the difference. That is the difference. And in terms of improving representation and society, you've presented the Paralympics, you reported on numerous award-winning current consumer shows, you, you're a regular panelist, as we said before, on Loose Women. And this is all alongside your campaign work. But you are one of the very few sort of presenters, aren't you, with a disability, what more do you think needs to be done to improve representation and dispel some of the myths surrounding disability? I mean, I think firstly you just being active on social media, with your platform, what you do is already moving the dial, right? that that has to be you being vulnerable, I suppose, is one of the first things that has to be said is is moving the dial. But what else can be done? I think that's where it gets exciting is that
1: actually what we're seeing on social media holly is people taking control of the narrative and yes being their truth selves and showing as you say the vulnerabilities but also the full experience right so we're seeing that that on social media we need to see that and on television we need to see those nuances played out we need to see the ways in which we exist within those tropes that we've unpacked today on this conversation from the trope that it's the worst thing that can happen to you and it's a pity story and it's it's terrifying and it's awful to the other trope which is you're this inspirational amazing superhuman as we as we see are uh, you know in the media these 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 tropes that exist in polarity we need to show the middle bits, you know, um, and I—that's my life's work—is to kind of delve into that and and to 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 represent the complexity of it all. In the same way, I try and I, I try and I liken it to i see the ways in which we talk about how women can be a multitude of things how women can be one thing and the other and they can be you know they that we don't need to live in these binaries that we can move around within it and that's okay and that should be the way that we see ourselves and see others that's the same for dis- disability it's that if we can apply that same uh, train of th- the way of thinking that actually you know for example for me i used to be very hesitant about expressing or um or admitting to my vulnerabilities as a disabled person um and that played out in my work, but in my relationships as well. I would often downplay my needs. I would often try and be as able as I possibly could um, uh, so that people didn't really, you know, reject it, reject me. And I, and I really was concerned about that. Now, 20 years down the line, not so much, Ollie. I'm very, this is who I am. I'm a wheelchair user. And when I'm on television, if I'm being carried around from location to location, for example, there's my support worker. This is how it works. You know, I've, I've found that I can embody both parts of, of my lived experience very comfortably and honestly now. And I think that's what we need to see more of. We need, yeah, I mean, representation on television and film is is improving, but it's got a long way to go. So I think we need to ask ourselves, not only what are we seeing, but also who's, who are the gatekeepers there? Who are the people that are writing these stories? Who are the people that are working behind the camera? As if we aren't in the room where the decisions are getting made, and I say we I mean disabled people then we're going to keep falling into those tropes because it's the same it's it, you can apply it to anything else if 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 we only saw men making decisions on women's bodies, <laughs> then we know what happens there. So it's we do. the same, yeah, Illyricate. we do. We,
0: we do. And non-disabled and,
1: people making decisions over disabled people's lives is where we're at. That's the problem. That's why I'm having these problems on aeroplanes. That's why I'm having problems in 10 Downing Street. That's why I'm having problems with people's attitudes. You know, it says that's this is the thing. So we need to get not only greater representation, we need to see disabled leaders. We need to see greater visibility. People need to understand that, 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 that we exist and there's a lot of us. Uh, we are not, we are the largest minority um, in the world.
0: Each week, I hand over this moment to our partners at Avon. Over the past few months, I've been working closely with Avon reps, supporting them on their personal and business journeys. I'm constantly amazed by not only Avon's work and impact but the resilience, grit and determination of each and every single Avon rep that I'm lucky enough to speak to day in and day out. They really are an amazing group of women and it's truly humbling to be part of their individual journeys. So with that in mind, for the rest of this series, I'll be handing over this ad break to some of them to share their own unique stories with you.
2: Hi, my name's Becky Ryder and I joined Avon three years ago. My reason was to have all those things in life that my job just couldn't stretch to. I'm a children's sister in a working full-time for the NHS. And although my bills were paid through my wage working as a nurse, I never had that bit extra. I wanted to be able to treat the kids without worrying, go on holidays and just do the things that I wanted to do. And in just three short years, Avon has given me that. That little extra and so much more. Running my business alongside being a nurse, retailing and supporting a fantastic team of people, just simply planning in advance what I'm doing and when I'm doing it, it has worked and it is working. Not only has Avon helped change my life with all the extra things that I couldn't afford but within my mindset too. I'm such a happier person, I have more of a purpose and I'm so excited for the future and where Avon will take me. Helping and supporting other people brings a whole new level to my business and I simply love what I do.
0: If you'd like to find out more about our partnership or how you too could go on your own business adventure as an Avon rep, head over to holly.co forward slash Avon. My next question to you, I think one of the most remarkable things about you is your ability to embrace change and 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 break down these barriers and you've never stopped challenging yourself whether that's traveling i mean just everyone follow sophie traveling halfway across the world alone uh, riding your motorbike what else have i seen you i've seen you recently scuba diving and the first chapter in your book explores that moment you revisited that car crash site with the camera crew that you were talking about you seem to put yourself in places that are challenging I think not only yourself but your mind you keep pushing and pushing yourself tell me what's that about when did that happen and and I think back to when we started this conversation it's it's just it's you you are always going to be doing this regardless um t- tell me about this journey that you're on with that brain of yours i love the challenge i think somebody asked this to, they said you know why do you love change And I love
1: change. Some people are terrified of change. And I find that fascinating because I think what's the worst that can happen? And perhaps that's the answer is that for me, this, the worst that could happen, you know, I nearly died and I was completely paralyzed. And I just really enjoy pushing myself, learning more, going into places that I never thought I'd be. And And I part of me thinks it's a it's the long journey to unpacking that ableism in me and going, okay, so hold on. What do you think you can't do? Okay, why do you think that you can't do that? Who's told you that? Where did you get that from? Was that you or was that someone else? Is that true? Let's go and find out. Maybe it is true. Maybe it's not. But if it's not, what happens next? And that kind of line of questioning is just there all the time. And I think I have to say, given my limitations, given my physical restrictions, given all of that, and living as, as a wheelchair user, which in itself, as much as I love my wheelchair, it's only so there's only so far it can it can go. Um, it's it is quite limiting in in itself. I think, given all of that, if I layered into my life this idea that oh, I'm scared of something, so I'm not going to do it, then I'm. I'm stopping myself from doing something. And then I'm doubly disabled. It's not just my body in my wheelchair that's stopping me. It's also me that's stopping me. So I'm like, right, okay, Sophie, have a word with yourself. What are you worried about here? What is it that's stopping you? And so honestly, Holly, half of the things that I do, I'm terrified of. I'm terrified of live broadcasting. I'm terrified of jumping out of an airplane. I, you know, I, I have the same fears as anybody else, right? I'm a normal human being, but what I have in, which is different is this lived experience that taught me, oh, actually you can go through something and you can get out the other side. It can can be really hard, but on the other side of the fear, that's where the freedom is. So off you go, try it, give it a go. You never know. And so actually I've come to learn that when there's something scary in the way, I lean into it. And I actually go, some people go, oh, I'm scared. I won't do it. I'll go, oh, I'm scared. I have to do it now. And that's just bonkers. But it's great. The,
0: the, the quote, not quote, it's a saying, adversity doesn't build character. It reveals character. And, and for me, that's, that is exactly it. That, that's freedom, Sophie, all over, you know, and you're always freedom, Sophie. It's your diary said it, right? And it's, it's, it's quite an amazing thing. Do you think you, your headstrong, resilient girl that you were served you so well, you got through? Do you think now looking back, do you give yourself the moment to talk to yourself about how proud you are? of how you have navigated this and, and, and it's written in your book. And, and, and I I forgot to mention that in, in terms of the challenges that you've set yourself, but do you look back and think how proud you are of her? Uh, well, it's funny you ask me that, Holly, because in the letter that I wrote into my young self, I've
1: I have touched on that so much. And
0: okay, look, well, I won't tell from your letter, which we'll
1: we, we will go into in a minute. But I, I, I didn't. I really didn't uh, until I wrote my book. And the reason why the book is called Driving Forwards is because I always keep driving forwards. I'm always going one way. I very rarely stop and look back. And to my detriment, you know. I think, and actually, that's why I don't say "well done, you." I keep going, okay. What haven't you done? And that's that's not healthy. And and I definitely need. No, I need to work on it. And writing the book, um, and actually going, wow, you've come a really long way. And I conclude my book with that thought. And actually, I'll touch on it in this letter that I've written. And I, I think to, to to explain, actually, you asking me to write a letter to myself is such an extraordinary process for someone like me and 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 to, to my younger self. And, and I think I couldn't have done that before, Holly. I couldn't have done that until I've written my book because I didn't like looking back and I didn't like talking about, you know, and I certainly wouldn't have, have celebrated myself. I wouldn't have celebrated the things I've done. I would have kept looking at the things I hadn't yet done. That urgency, that same drive that you and I both relate to when we were younger. I still have, you know, what's next? What's next? What's next? What's next? What's next? What's next? <laughs> so I don't, I don't sit and go, well done. I go right, but yeah, but you haven't done that yet, and you haven't done that yet.
0: So it's sad. <laughs> you have been. I've, I've got a couple of questions to ask you that I ask everybody because I, I talk about. You know, our missions on life being a roller coaster and whether that's campaigning and whether that's running a business, it's a roller coaster that we have our highs and lows. And uh, thanks to social media, we normally see majority of highs or the lows that we want to share. And then there are others. Can you tell me what you would say has been your biggest low that you would regard as your biggest low on your journey? It was um,
1: almost just over about three years ago. I was, oh gosh, I was at my lowest, 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 lowest I've ever been. And I really did not know how to go forward, actually. I had just, um, well, we were in the height of COVID. I was shielding because they didn't know how COVID was going to impact someone with spinal injury of my level, um, which I found extremely challenging. I'd lost my job, uh, which had been a dream job I'd been working towards, which was actually traveling around the world on a motorbike. Um, And I was, I'd started filming that the day that COVID actually kind of, the the day we went into lockdown actually. So that's where the book starts on that day, the day that I was up in, up in Scotland at the place where I crashed 18 years later. And I'm sitting there going, look how far I've come and, uh, and, and celebrating that. And then boom, COVID happened. So I, um, so that from... So at that moment, yeah, I was writing. I was writing my book, which I have. I have to say, was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Incredibly heartbreaking for me because I looked back, and I did all of those things, and it was very, very hard. I read read all my diaries from when I was younger. I spent time, spent two years, you know, just really agonizing. Also, I'm dyslexic. I don't. I I love to write, but I, I struggle with it. And the process of writing a book by myself, honestly, was the hardest thing I've ever done in terms of creative output um oh it was brutal absolutely brutal and uh, my boyfriend had just broken up with me and I was reflecting on all of the loss and all of the grief and all of those things and I yeah I was I was at my lowest low and I did not know what was next um so I I weirdly of it's weird actually my lowest low came 20 years or 18 years after what you'd think would be the lowest low which was when I was paralyzed but um it certainly wasn't actually um I think it's because I lost my resilience I lost my energy I lost the drive. You lost it your fizzled out. Absolutely it blew out yeah. and the fire went out and everything went out and I just went oh god I don't know if I've got it in me. Don't know who so, I um, am. Absolutely don't know who I am don't know where to go next and I don't know if I've yeah. got the energy. You know I, I lost yeah. I lost it. I lost sight of it. Um and I was on bed rest which um I won't I don't have time to explain fully what that means but basically so every now and again as a wheelchair user I have to, uh, and I can't sit. There's, I have a problem area on my right bum cheek, which is I've got a scar on that um, from a wound that I got years ago, where I got a splinter. I got infected. That I didn't know it was there. That that um, infection had to be removed, and I was then put into a period of what we call bed rest, which is basically lying on my stomach um, for that to heal, because I can't sit on it because the pressure from sitting would stop it from healing. And I ended up having to lie on my stomach for the best part of three years, waiting for this wound to heal. And that was when I was in my early 20s. And that was horrendous, horrendous. But the scar that's been left in that same area is problem. It's very weak. It's a problem area. And every now and again, I bang it or scratch it or something. I irritate it. And when I was writing my books, I was sitting on it so much. It flared up and I ended up having to go on to a period of bed rest at the time as well. So I was lying on my stomach day in, day out. And what that means is I literally cannot get in my chair. I can't sit in my chair until this the wound heals because it will get worse. And um, and I need to wait for it to heal. So I have to lie on my tummy. I can't even go to the loo. Well, no, I, all I can do is go to the loo. I can't even wash or anything. I just have to lie off it. And that's it's, it's torturous for me. And um, yeah, I was in a period of four months of bed rest. I'd, be, I'd done at that point. So four months lying on my stomach, three months, sorry, lying on my stomach in COVID, with the book, um, with all of the breakup, with everything. It was just, it was too much. I couldn't do it. So that's when I was at my lowest low.
0: Oh, my heart just shattered in pieces for you there. I, I, my gosh, and here you are smiling at me. I mean, what a, what a woman. Tell me about the high. What would you say conversely? I'm I'm on it now.
1: I think I'm actually on. I'm I'm riding it, or I'm on the up at least. So I have got through that, and this is one of the things I love about my disability. If I'm really honest with you, Holly, is that the lower the low, the higher the high, and when Mm -hmm. I go through those lows, which are for me the worst, you know, being stuck in a room for months on end, not being able to move, dealing with my demons that I always try and outrun, you know, or being Mm. heartbroken by somebody again, or losing my job, which I worked so hard for, or something like all these things for me relatively they are the worst. And when I go through all of that, and then I come out the other side, and I start to build the pieces of my life back together and I start to progress and, and I start to succeed. And, you know, after that, I actually got my, my travel show, my own travel show on channel four. I got my own show and I, I, you know, I just, so many wonderful things happened after that. I got my motorbike. I traveled everywhere. I've been all around the world. I've just started. I've been writing. I got my book out. I, I finished the book. I got it out and it did so well. And I, you know, and, and I found this, and again, a, a refreshed gratitude for life because I so very nearly kind of didn't make it out of that dark pe- fe- window. And and there I am, you know, and now I'm doing all these things. And and also, look at what's happening at the moment. As, mu- as heavy as this campaign is, isn't it amazing that people are listening to me disabled people every day have these problems. Every day there's another story and they don't get to do anything about it. And I do. And that is so amazing. I've worked so hard to get to this point that people are listening and I'm making documentaries and I'm traveling the world and I'm about to set up a production company and I'm literally about to move over to America where I'm going to be doing work with Paralympians there. And I'm honestly, like the list is long and I won't bore people with it, but it's where I want to be. So it's like, I'm on that high now, and and I've had some big highs in my life, big highs like the most because of the lows. Because yes. I need, you know, literally, like- I'm I'm a bit of a child, you know. My friends are always saying to me, like I'm like, oh my god, this is the best thing in the world you know when I'm just like having a, a kitchen, <laughs> kitchen disco with my mates and I'm like oh I love you all so much you know I get like that all the time because I nearly lost it and and honestly that's why I'm so blessed that's why I say I'm lucky I was disabled because you know that lust and gratitude it's like it's it's like I get this exaggerated version of life I get these extreme lows but these magical highs because I know what low means. And I know, you know, I'm just so grateful. And they always say great, gratitude is that is the equation, you know, that equation for happiness. It, it, it's all about gratitude and how much you appreciate things and where your expectations lie. Exactly, so yeah. I'm on the up, but oh, I have no illusion that I will be on the low like, as well. You're
0: like, you're like, I don't know. I mean, you're like a, t- like some sort of like, forget pre... I've just started taking... I mean, this is like, so, you've just said the most amazing speech there. And I'm about to talk about prebiotics, you know. You oh, know, yes. I'm, I love that. I'm literally... You know, talk about literally, that. Literally, no, no. But literally, you're like... <laughs> And then I was like, no, it's not that, Holly. It's like having a Barocca. You're like a Barocca. Not my probiotics. You're like a Barocca. I just like listen to you. And I, I just don't know what I'm going to do after this podcast. I'm just going yes. to just jump. Just, just do it. Yes, do um, it. Tell me, Sophie, <laughs> I could talk to you forever. I... um." I I really, really could. You are just uh, a super, super woman. My gosh. And um, I wanted to, though, ask you, you referred to this letter to your younger self. I'm wondering if you would do us the honour of reading it to us. Well, hi. It's good to see you again. I try hard not to spend too much time in thought about you,
1: but here we are. So here we go. I see you there in your tattered school uniform your tall athletic frame dressed in the way that you like it, the puffer jacket splattered with holes from cigarette burns, snug and in your mind flattering like the skirt that you've hitched up to the perfect height to hide some of those absolutely pointless insecurities you have but also to flaunt those strong and powerful legs of yours. I suppose I look at your body first and foremost as to me it's so beautiful now And I know how little you appreciate it. How does it feel to be in that body though, Sophie? To be so able, to play all those sports, to run with your friends, to walk beside your boyfriend, to be so able and to be so free? Do you even think about it? But look, I also see you and I know how hard you're finding it all right now. You are itching for freedom. School has been really hard for you, all the rules and the regulations and the authorities telling you what you can and can't do. I know what you write about in your diaries. I know the freedom that you seek because I seek it too, Sophie. I seek it too, always. So look, a part of me has toyed with the idea of writing to you before, when I was at the lowest point in my life, when I lost my ability to know how to keep going, when I was drowning in all of the loss and the grief And when thoughts of you and where you might be should things have been different became too much for me, I thought about writing to you to warn you. I really did. I thought about coming up to Scotland with a list of instructions to tell you what, over the next few months, you ought to do differently. I wanted to try and make you see just how much you have to beg you to savor the times that you might take for granted right now. And ultimately, I thought about attempting to change your fate. But now here I am, where I am today, and currently I have no intention of doing that. You see, it's been nearly 20 years since I stood where you are, and so much has happened. But I know that despite how hard it got for me, my life has been extraordinary, perhaps more extraordinary than yours would have been. So let me tell you a bit about it. Life for me, Sophie, is filled with adventure, a passion, and purpose. I now have the type of friendships that stories are written about, people who have gotten me through the darkest days imaginable, people who make me laugh till I fall over, people who carry me places I never dreamed of, people who are by my side no matter what crazy shit I do, friendships so lasting and so loving that they are tattooed onto our skin. And I even have friendships with my mother and my father that I know you would balk at, We dance together, we party together, we cry and we sing and we get through so much together. And I've been lucky enough to find the people in my parents. They saved my life and I owe them everything. And who gets to thank their parents for giving them life twice? My job is wonderful too, don't get me wrong, it's been tough to get here, but it's really all that I dreamed of now that I am here. And the people I get to meet and the places I get to go, as a TV presenter, honestly, it's the stuff that you write about in those diaries of yours. You would love it. I help people and I advocate for people. And I get to be part of a community that I adore, surrounded by people who see the world so differently, who embody so many of the traits that I love that I know that you love too. People who are creative and bold and outliers, who live on the margins of life and have a different perspective to others. You would love them. So I'm not gonna tell you what will happen to you, but I will tell you this, however, that you have everything that you need in you to get through it all. That all that tenacity, all that anger, all that drive that you have, it will save you. So don't let anyone tell you that being so difficult is something that to, to be ashamed of. Difficult girls like you become powerful women like me. So keep that fire in you alive, no matter what. And know this too, Your life will not be what you expect it to be. So try and enjoy the ride. Listen to your mum. You get your strength from her and learn from your dad. You get your values from him. The rebel in you will one day find its cause. So be brave and be open-minded and be kind. And one day we will meet and reconcile our differences and I'll forgive you for what you do to me. Because if you didn't, I wouldn't be the woman I am today. I wouldn't be the version of you That I am today. So go big, be brave. Love, Sophie. Gosh.
0: What a bloody beautiful letter. (laughs) What a beautiful letter. What's so clever and wonderful. And I just, you know, Sophie, you're, you're incredibly powerful. Just unbelievable. And you're already flying high, but I've got to say, I, I'm going to watch you soar. I just know <laughs> it. I just know it. And I'm just addicted to you already, but I'm now just going to, I I just, I'm just going to watch you soar. And I think anyone that's listening knows that they're going to watch you soar. And I just, um, you're profound and you're, you're fascinating and you're wise and you are, um, and in the right context completely inspirational to me so thank you so much Sophie for being on this podcast thank you for having me and thank you for inviting me to write that
1: letter it was really for me very special I'm really grateful Holly thank you
0: If you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co.